So we're in the book of Leviticus, in the Old Testament, book number three, the book of Leviticus. Now, this is a book that a lot of people overlook. They think that all the rules, all the sacrifices are redundant and boring. We will see some redundancy. Everything we somewhat read about in chapters one and two will pick up in chapters six Again, they'll be repeated, uh, but from a different perspective. And I think when you understand the perspectives that they're coming from, it helps you gain a better understanding of the book itself. But the book of Leviticus, I believe that it helps us to better understand the uniqueness of Jesus and his sacrificial offering that he made of himself upon the cross, seeing that he is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, And the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the rules then, the sacrifices that are found in the book of Leviticus helps believers to better understand the work of Jesus. And also, I believe, his unrelenting love for us. And it helps us understand how we better might be able to walk and to please God. So the book of Leviticus is basically a a handbook for worshipers. It's for the worshipers, as we'll see tonight, but also for the priest, as we'll see in a few weeks. So it's a handbook of how to, how to worship God. It is the first book that is to be studied by a Jewish child. And sadly for Christians, it might be the last book that they ever study or, and, or if they ever get around to it. There are a lot of Christians in churches today that believe that we have no need to even study the Old Testament because we're of the New Testament. Granted, the church did birth out of the work of Jesus Christ. We learn about the work of the church in the New Testament and the Gospels, but everything that Christ did through his sacrifice upon the cross is revealed to us first in prophecy that is found in the Old Testament. And just consider this. When the early church went out preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts, there was no New Testament for them to read from. Only the Old Testament portion of our Bible existed. And then as time went on, these the gospels and the epistles and the book of Revelation then were written for our learning, the book of Acts as well. So the title Leviticus is actually a Latin word, and it's taken from the first words of the book of Leviticus in the Hebrew. It's translated for us, now the Lord called to Moses, or, and he called. And so in the Latin, they translate that Hebrew word that's Uh, Translated for us, now the Lord called. They translated that in the Latin Vulgate as Leviticus. And so really the title itself, it's not because the priests were the tribe of Levi, um, but the opening words when translated from the Hebrew into the Latin Vulgate, and he called, that is the word Leviticus. The overall theme of the book is holiness to the Lord. And the book is divided in two basic sections. Chapters 1 through 16 teaches the worshipers how they 
are to worship a holy God. And chapter 17 through 27 teaches worshipers how they are to walk before our holy God. There are a number of key words found in the book of Leviticus. Um, The word offering is used 287 times, offerings, plural, 36 times, so a total of 323 times. The priests are named 189 times. Holy is referred to 87 times. Blood is mentioned 86 times. Atonement is found 45 times, and sacrifice 42 times. So it is a book of offerings. It is a book of sacrificial offerings that the children of Israel were to offer before the Lord, but to do so in the proper way, according to the law of God. So the practical purpose of the book was to teach the worshiper how to properly worship God, what qualified or disqualified a person from worship, and how the worshiper was to worship God in his day-to-day life. So it wasn't just uh, worshiping God on the great feast days, but every day how they were to walk and to worship God. The six offerings that are expounded upon in the book of Leviticus are, and we'll look at the first two tonight in chapters 1 and 2. So the six offerings are the burnt So we can say burnt offering, but burnt, grain, drink, peace, sin, and trespass. So the six offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, we'll look at these two tonight. The drink offering is in, I believe it's in Leviticus 23. It'll be a while before we get to that one. Peace offering, sin offering, and trespass offering, uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5. And again, holiness is the theme of the book. Leviticus 20, verse 7 says, Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. So the book of Leviticus is referenced also about 40 times in the New Testament. And so it was important, and Jesus even pointed to it, connecting it to his own sacrifice. In Hebrews 10, you find a lot of um, connections in the book of Hebrews, but Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would not then they would have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there are the reminder of the sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So the law, and we look at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and here in Leviticus, we're learning about the sacrificial system, specifically the how-to book for the worshipers and for the priest conducting the worship for the people. Paul said, 
the law was a tutor until the time of Christ, where they're talking about the daily sacrifices that were offered by the priest of Israel, the individual sacrifices that were brought by the people of Israel, or the day of atonement sacrifice, when one time a year the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. The repetitive nature of these sacrifices revealed that the sins, though they were merely covered, kofar in the Hebrew, though they were covered, they were not removed. Otherwise, as the author of Hebrews says, once forgiven, then the sinner would not need to offer any other sacrifice. The consciousness of sin would be no more. So Galatians 3.24, Paul said, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And as a tutor, these sacrifices and offerings found in the law, in the book of Leviticus, it helps to bring us to Jesus, bring us to faith. But also, I believe the book of Leviticus can help us to have a greater understanding of the work of Jesus Christ his offering upon the cross. So we get into chapter 1. I titled this, A Costly and Messy Sacrifice. And I chose as a key verse, verse 4, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. So the purpose of the offering, this being the burnt offering in chapter 1, just dealing with the burnt offering. And chapters 1 through 7, we find Moses instructing the priests and the worshipers how to properly offer the grain, the burnt, the peace, the sin, the trespass offerings. Three of these offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering, uh, we find that when they burn them on the altar, it will say it's a sweet aroma to the Lord, a sweet, savory uh, odor or smell to the Lord. It was barbecue time, and God smelt the barbecue, and he loved it. The thing is, this was these three offerings, the burnt, the grain, the peace offerings, sweet aroma offerings, so they can be classified as that. The sin and the trespass offerings were non-sweet aroma offerings because they dealt with the worshiper's sin. In some sense, as we see in this first chapter, the burnt offering also dealt with sin because it made atonement for him. But specifically, the sin and trespass offerings, which we'll look at and begin to look at next week, non-sweet aroma offerings dealing with the worshiper's sin before our holy and righteous God. One of the first things we notice in this chapter is that the sacrifices were to cost the worshipers, and they were very messy. So the burnt offering, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord called, and that's that word in the Hebrew that's translated as Leviticus, Now the Lord called. Now the Lord called to Moses, and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the, or of the flock, 
If his offering is a burnt offering or burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, and he shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. And so we're really picking up from last week, closing out in the book of Leviticus chapter 40, they erected the tabernacle. It's like, okay, now the church is built, now what? And so God said, here's how you're going to worship me there at the tabernacle. And so a burnt offering was to come from the worshiper's livestock of the herd or of the flock. So the worshipers themselves would raise their sacrificial animals. Others, no doubt, who didn't uh, raise animals would purchase the animals. But either way, it was to come at a cost. If it was of the herd, an oxen, cattle, the worshiper was to offer a male without blemish and of his own free will. And so of a burnt offering, it was something that the worshiper did. And it's significant. We'll look at that at the very end of this chapter, uh, what stood behind the meaning of a burnt offering. But the offering itself was to be of male without blemish. And later on, we'll read of offerings being without blemish, without spots. Uh, it speaks about that perfect animal being offered before the Lord. And so God didn't want the, uh, the animals that nobody really, you know, they wouldn't win any uh, awards at the uh, farm fairs that we could have or county fairs that we might have. God wanted the best. He wanted that ribboned animal without spot or without blemish. But it's also to come from the worshiper of their own free will. In other words, the worshiper, whether a man or a woman, was to freely offer the best that they had to the Lord. And this ties a little bit with 2 Corinthians 9, 7, where it says, So let each of us purpose in his heart, not grudgingly, not out of necessity, for God loves the cheerful giver. And so this offering was to be a free will offering to the Lord. And then he goes on and says in verses 4 through 9, He shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill it, the bull before the Lord, and the priest, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar, that it is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron and the priests shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. And then the priest, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts of the head and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But he shall wash its entrails, its legs, with water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. So in my mind, somewhere as a kid, growing into an adult, it probably took me a while to figure this one out. I always thought people brought their offerings and said to the priest, here you go, this is my offering. But did you hear what he said? It was more than just laying his hand on the animal. The laying the hand on the animal was actually um, that animal then standing in his place 
that animal then taking the person's place, a transfer was being made when he laid his hand upon the animal. So I used to think the worshiper would simply just lay his hand on the animal, present it to the priest. The priest would go and do everything else necessary for the offering itself. But we discover that for the worshiper, it was a very messy and bloody sacrifice. I think about this and the butchering of animals. And when I was a teenager working at the grocery store and, uh, the one area in the whole grocery store that I could not stand the smell of was where the butchers worked. And every once in a while, we'd go help him clean up at the end of the day. And it was at that time, there was sawdust all over the floor. That's how they soaked up the blood and you sweep it up. And it just had this smell about it that really disgusted me. Now, we think about coming to a tabernacle or a temple for worship, and we think of pristine and clean and the temple uh, being of white stone that reflected the sun as if it was gold. But when the animals were being sacrificed, it was a butcher shop, and it was bloody, and it was messy, and it was stinky. But it was the worshiper who did the killing, killing, the worshiper who did the skinning, the worshiper who did the gutting and the cutting. And so basically, the worshiper would handle the animal, but everything that pertained to the altar of sacrifice, the priest would then handle that portion of the offering. So it was a very hands-on experience for the worshiper. He got, she got very messy, as the worshiper was the one who killed the offering before the Lord, while the priest caught its blood of the slain animal to offer it on the bronze altar. The worshiper was one who, verse 6, skint the burnt offering, cut it into pieces. As the priest arranged the wood upon the altar, then the priest, verse 8, shall lay the parts, the head, the fat, in order on the wood that's on the altar, while the worshiper, verse 9, washes its entrails, its legs with water. And the priest, verse 9 again, shall burn all on the altar of the burnt sacrifice, the offering made by fire, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Though the priest fulfilled vital duties concerning the ceremony, the offering itself, everything that dealt with the bronze altar, they handled that. But the worshiper, he did the presenting, the transferring by laying on the hand, the killing, the skinning, the cutting, the cleansing, or the cleaning. And it was truly an offering that cost the worshiper and was very messy. But it was a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Ezekiel 20:41. I will accept you as a sweet-smelling aroma when I bring you out of the peoples and gather you out of the countries where I have scattered you. I will be hallowed before you, before the Gentiles. God's desire, that sweet-smelling aroma, was to be for his people as well, not just the offering that was offered on the altar of incense, or the altar of burnt offering, but the people themselves. And God promised Israel after their captivity that he would make them a sweet-smelling aroma unto himself. 
So that was verses 1 through 9, dealing with a burnt offering that came from um, the herd, cattle, oxen. Now this, verses 10 through 13, deals with the burnt offering, same. We only really gain one extra detail out of this, but that detail is important. Uh, dealing with the offering that came from the flocks, either sheep or the goats. So verses 10 through 13, we'll read. And if his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt offering, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And the priest, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle his blood all around the altar. And he shall cut it into its pieces and with its head and its fat and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar but he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water and the priest shall bring them all and burn it on the altar it is a burnt sacrifice an offering made by fire a sweet smelling aroma to the lord so the one additional thing other than now it's either a sheep or goat. They're both male. They're both without blemish, whether of oxen or a sheep or a cattle or of goat, male without blemish. And the same procedure takes place. The hand is laid on this transfer from the person to the animal. The worshiper does the killing. But this time we learn the location of that killing. It's on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And so the tabernacle and the temple were always set that the entry way was always to the east. So as they would enter from the east, east is this way for us, they would enter from the east, then the north would be to the right, and it would be to the right in the courtyard where the killing would take place. And so we learn a little detail there that wasn't in verses 1 through 9. Other than that, it's pretty much the same as the worshiper, once again, is the one who does the killing and the cutting, the skinning, and the priest is the one who is connected to the altar and doing the sprinkling and the burning. Here he goes a little bit more in explaining, I think maybe a little better in verse 13, that once it's all cut up, everything is burnt up on the altar. This is a burnt sacrifice, verse 13, an offering made with fire, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. So with the burnt offering, everything was burned. And the purpose of that, talking about the total dedication of this individual to the Lord. And so they did not share in the offering. The priest did not share in this offering. It was a whole burnt offering unto the Lord. And again, it came at a cost to the worshiper. And the worshiper and the priest both had their duties to perform and both got messy in the process. Ephesians 5.2 reminds us that we are to walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So that sweet-smelling aroma that is spoken of often in the book of Leviticus connected specifically to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. His offering, his sacrifice to God was a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. They also, in verses 14 through 17, 
What if you can't afford an oxen, a cattle, sheep, goats? Well, God made uh, the possibility for everyone to participate in verses 14 through 17, speaking of turtle doves or young pigeons. If the burnt offering or burnt sacrifice is offered to the Lord is of birds, then he shall bring of his offering two uh, turtle doves or young pigeons. I put the two in there, but it's two. And the priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and the burnt offering of altar, its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crops, its feathers, its case beside the altar and the east side and the place for the ashes. Now we learn where the ashes are located uh, before they cleaned everything up. Even the ashes uh, will find out they weren't just thrown out. They were deemed holy unto the Lord. So later on, we'll learn in the book of Leviticus that they had to deal properly even with the ashes of these offerings. In verse 17, he shall split it, its wings, and it shall not be divided completely. The priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the sacrifice. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. I said too because... That is what Mary and Joseph brought after the birth of Christ. If you remember, after the days of her purification in Luke 2, through 24, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer, this offering was for Mary, uh, this offering was for Mary, a sacrifice according to what was said of the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so the birds are for those who couldn't afford an offering of cattle or oxen, sheep or goats, but of two turtle doves or two pigeons that were offered, only speaking about one here in our texts. But this was a little bit different. They would be the laying on, the transfer upon this animal, the bird. But the priest handled everything. They were so small that the priest just did all of this one. He did the killing, the wringing of the neck, and the cropping, um, taking the cropping of the animal means to take its digestive tracts out and all the organs out, and then the burning, the feathers off as well, and then the burning on the altar itself. So whether a burnt offering came from a worshiper's herd, from the flock, it came to them at a cost. Even if the offering was the simplest, uh, the two turtle doves or two pigeons, whether they caught them or bought them, it came at a cost. I don't know if you've tried catching birds. It probably takes a little time. These offerings were also messy, messy for both the worshiper and the priest who performed the rituals connected to the burnt offering. The burnt offering not only brought atonement, verse 4, to the worshiper, but it symbolized, the burnt offering symbolized the total consecration or dedication to the Lord. So the burnt offering itself, it reminds me of the costly and messy sacrifice of the cross of Jesus Christ. 
who in obedience to his father, Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Therefore, as worshipers, having our sins atoned for, may it be that we would consecrate, dedicate ourselves, our lives to Jesus. The word of God tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus paid the price that we could not afford, that we might have true fellowship with God. So the grain offering in chapter 2, I chose verse 2 as a key verse here, where it says, And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, one of whom shall take it from take from it his handful of fine flour and oil and all the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet smelling aroma to the Lord. And so the grain offering, this offering actually we will read it is most holy to the Lord, the grain offering. It reminds me, well, we'll even read about the making of bread in this offering. The initial portion is just bringing grain without the actual producing of bread. The next portion will go into the making of bread, whether fried in a pan or baked in an oven, and how it should be presented to the Lord. But it really reminds me of communion. And that is... A bit of this but also we need to understand with the grain offering we're not uh, okay this is how you do offerings first you bring a burnt offering and then you got to bring a grain offering and then comes the peace offering the grain offering was offered sometimes solely by itself but always with the other offerings so with a peace offering, there would be a grain offering and a drink offering presented with it. The idea of the peace offering with the grain and drink offering is that the worshiper would have communion with God. Does it remind us a little bit of communion when we talk about bread and wine? And so this is significant, but here it's just describing the process of the grain offering by itself, even though often it would be offered with a peace offering, or maybe the burnt offering as well. So verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2, when anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, of his offering shall be a fine flour, and shall be poured, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. I personally, I can't get past the flour, the oil, and the frankincense, unless it was only the memorial portion, it seemed like it would wreck the flour because a portion of this would go to the priest. So it'd be some pretty tasty stuff, I guess. But oil, oil's not bad, right? On flour, that's how you make bread, a little oil in there. The frankincense might give it some uh, spicy flavor to it. Verse 2, but the priest, but he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, one of whom shall take it from his handful of fine flour of oil and of with all the frankincense. And the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy, a most holy offering 
of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. So it is a most holy offering of the offerings. The grain offering stood out to the Lord more than the other offerings. This is the only one that he describes in this manner. It is a most holy offering of the offerings to the Lord. So I think perhaps that most holy part is that through the grain offering, the worshiper could have communion with God. God also with the grain offering provided for the priest and their service there at the house of the Lord. So only a memorial portion was burned up on the altar as a sweet smelling aroma to the Lord, like fresh baked bread. Grain always smells good when it's burning, um, being cooked over a fire. But the rest went to Aaron and his sons as provision for them. So the grain offering offered with the burnt and peace offerings, Moses instructed them in the Feast of Weeks on Pentecost, uh, specifically tying the burnt offering and the grain offering together and the drink offering, Leviticus 23.18 So for the Feast of Weeks or the celebration at Pentecost, the priest would offer seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull, two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offering, an offering made by fire for a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. So the Feast of Weeks and the Pentecost, as we know it today as well, This offering offered along with the burnt offering on the altar as a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. But unlike the burnt offering that was completely and wholly burned up upon the altar, the grain offering was only a memorial portion. The remainder of the offering went to the priests where they couldn't just like take it out and sell it. I'm going to make money off this grain. That was one of... uh, not one, both of the sons of Samuel, they were disrespecting the Lord's offerings. It's why Israel asked for a king to lead them instead of Samuel, who was their judge and they would soon be dying, and they didn't want to see his sons rule over them as priest and judge. So they requested a king because his sons were not good. And they would actually go to the meat pots and and put their flesh hooks in and pull them out. They were serving the Lord for profits. That's not how it was supposed to be. For the priest, in Ezekiel 42, verse 13, it tells us this would be at the temple, the north chambers and the south chambers of the temple and the courtyard. The holy chambers were where the priest who approached the Lord would eat the most holy offerings. See, they had to remain in the courtyard. They had to eat it right there. They couldn't bring it home as leftovers. It was most holy unto the Lord, and so they had to consume it there in the holy place. There they shall lay the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, for the place is holy. But when offered with the peace offering, so the burnt offering and the grain offering went a memorial portion to the priest. The burnt offering was offered, holy burnt up. When offered with the peace offering, then the worshiper participated. 
he not only gave the priest a memorial portion, memorial portion on the altar, burn up as a sweet-smelling aroma. The priest got a portion, and the worshiper also with the peace offering, as we'll learn next week, was able to eat, have that communion. He also ate in the courtyard of the temple because it was an offering to the Lord. So he had communion with God, partaking with the Lord the meat and the grain and the drink offering. So if baked, whether in an uncovered pan or a covered pan, so stovetop or oven, we might say, verses 4 through 7, if you bring the offering, a grain offering baked in the oven, it shall be of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. But if your offering is of grain baked in a pan, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces, pour, it on, pour oil on it. It is a grain offering, and you shall offer... The offering is a grain offering baked in a covered pan. It shall be made of fine flour with oil. And so explaining the process of this, whether a covered or uncovered pan, whether baked or stovetop, uh, it was to be of unleavened bread. And I like that verse in verse... Verse 6, where you shall break it. Again, it reminds me of communion, the Lord Jesus Christ. When at supper with his disciples, he took the bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And so we get this sense of communion with God, very symbolic. The unleavened nature of the bread itself, it was to be made without leaven, because in the Bible, leaven is symbolic of evil or a type of sin throughout the Bible, and so the grain offering was to be represented without leaven uh, to say that it is without corruption. And so 8 through 11, you shall bring the grain offering that was made of these things to the Lord, and when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar, and the priest shall take from the grain offering a memorial portion and burn it on the altar. And it is an offering made by fire, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. And what is left of the grain offering, so this is the grain offering that's baked or pan-fried. What is left of the grain offering shall be Aaron and his sons. It is most holy. It is most holy of the offerings made by fire to the Lord. They repeat that again. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not burn no leaven or any honey in the offering to the Lord made by fire. So no leaven, no honey. And the leaven, again, I representing sin. Honey can have a corrupting effect on things as well, a fermenting that it can have. And so these offerings were to be uncorrupted, just as the desire of the worshiper to be uh, freed of their sin. Therefore, the leaven, sometimes the honey, are seen as evil, corrupting uh, things that affect gradual change in a person or in a nation. And so these breads were to be made without that. What would Paul say about leaven in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, 
since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. And so we close out verses 12 through 16. The offering of first fruits. As for the offering of first fruits, you shall offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet aroma. And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. Man, they're making bread here. It's unleavened bread, but it's got oil and salt and flour. With all your offerings you shall offer with salt. And if you offer the grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits green heads of the grain roasted on the fire, grain beaten from the full heads. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn it as a memorial portion. Part of it shall be beaten of its beaten grain and part of its oil and all of its frankincense. And it shall be offered made with fire to the Lord. So the final grain offering, talking about the first fruits, talking about the first harvest, uh, as crops would begin to come in, they were to offer first fruits unto the Lord, to thank him for the harvest that was coming, as Leviticus 23, 10 and 11 will tell us. Speak to the children of Israel, say to them, when you come into the land which I give you, you reap its harvest, you shall bring a chief of the first fruits of the harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, and the priest shall wave it. And so this time, that grain offering with oil and frankincense, and a memorial portion, some of that burned on the altar, always offered with salt. And this is the first time salt is mentioned in the Bible connected to offerings, but it was something that they did. Uh, salt always had to be part of the offering on the altar to the Lord. Ezra, when he returned back to Jerusalem, to become the governor over Jerusalem as they are rebuilding the city. Ezra the priest, it says in Ezra 7, 21 and 22, Artaxerxes the king, uh, writing the decree, he says, And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Whatever he needs, give it to him. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 corns of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limits. Salt was key back then. They didn't have refrigeration. If they wanted to preserve meat, they needed salt. And so it was very costly uh, getting the salt, gathering the salt, using the salt for preserving, but for Ezra, without prescribed limits. Now, Artaxerxes would go on and say, because he would tell Ezra, when you go there, 
and offer sacrifices to the Lord there at the temple. Pray for me. So he was selfish in this nature. He told all the different gods of all the different nations to pray for him. He just wanted prayer from everywhere. But specifically, he got the right prayers when it came from the temple of God. Sir Ian Thomas referred to salt as a symbol of God's unlimited supply of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we know that salt was used as a preservative in the Bible, still is to this day. And we are to be seasoned with salt, God's word, God's spirit in our lives. It keeps us pure. Jesus said in Mark 9:50, salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves. So the Lord Jesus himself said we're to be salty Christians. Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. Usually we think of somebody calling them salty. We're thinking they're kind of maybe a little grumpy or older. That's a salty person. Matthew 5:13. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing. It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So it's called the salt of the covenant of your God in verse 13, because salt was symbolic of the covenant itself. In Second Chronicles 13:5, should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons, by a covenant of salt? Pretty interesting. I've never went too deep or in depth on the use of salt in the offering, but it is obviously there and important. So like with the burnt offerings, the grain offerings came at a cost to the worshipers. They were to be a fine flour. Some was just simply flour mixed with oil and frankincense, seasoned with salt, as we learned. If they would bake them, it would be made without leaven, whether in an open pan or a covered dish, whether on the stovetop or oven, we might say. They would burn a memorial portion on the bronze altar as a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. And as believers, we are to be that sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, which can only be accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. It is Christ who preserves our lives, who saves us and cleanses us of our sin. Without Jesus, we would continue in corruption in the leaven of this world. But like salt upon the offering, our light Lives have been preserved, and they are being held by the covenant of faith in Jesus Christ through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that oil of the Holy Spirit, we might say. Like the frankincense of the offering, we are to be that fragrance of Jesus, to be that sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord and to others. In 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, it tells us, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are the aroma of death, leading to death. To the other, the aroma of life leading to life. So to the Christian, we are to be the aroma of life leading to life to one another. To unbelievers, maybe you wonder, why don't they like me? 
Well, it could be that we're actually an aroma of death to them because of the light of Christ in our lives. Let's go ahead and stand together. Here at Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa on Wednesday evenings, we've been going through the ABCs of salvation. And I just want to run through it again tonight. I haven't been doing it as consistently as I did last year. But it's good to be reminded of these things. The A stands for admit, that we need to admit to God that we are sinners and ask for his forgiveness. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But 1 John 1.9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to admit to God that we are sinners. Ask for that forgiveness. The B is for believe. Believe in the work that Jesus did upon the cross. His death, burial, his resurrection from the grave. We can even go on to say his ascension into heaven. Receive that gift of salvation. In Romans 5, 8, it tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have to believe in that work the work that Jesus did upon the cross. And we need to confess our faith in Jesus Christ, not only confess to Christ, but to others, meaning we have to share our faith with others. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, But if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10:13. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls. That offer, offer of salvation is still available to this day. If you're watching through social media, through the video, listening on the radio live now or maybe at some other time, and you have questions regarding faith, please email us at cclv at comcast.net, cclv at comcast.net. We would love to correspond with you. This coming Sunday, we're going to be back in the chronological journey through the Bible. Uh, We'll be in the Synoptic Gospels, and this is our 20. Lesson number 21 uh, in our chronological journey through the Gospels. And I look forward to being with you here at the church, through social media, or on WLGS radio. Father, we thank you for this night and learning about the sacrificial offerings found in the book of Leviticus. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this study. Help us to gain a greater understanding of your sacrifice And also the worshiper's parts. I pray, Father, that you would let us to know that we are to participate. And sometimes, Lord, when we participate in serving you in this life, it can be messy. But still, Lord, you can take the messiness of this world and when combined with faith and the grain and the drink offering communion, we can then become a sweet-smelling aroma unto you. Let that be our prayer this night, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Pray that God would bless you and keep you. 
that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. god bless.